King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a, a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed before my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's also called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to all the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was fruit for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. And from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, Strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the fields. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times, or that word can mean years, pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of peoples. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, Tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. It's interesting, isn't it, as people start to take steps of faith, they have a revelation of truth, but not the, the full revelation. And this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps the least likely man on the face of the earth, is starting to understand who God is. And yet at times the language can get a little bit confused. The, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He's, he's got a, gr a grasp on it, hasn't he? Certainly the spirit of the true and living God is in Daniel. But these other gods who he's beginning to realize aren't gods at all, he still talks about. So he's still sort of, uh, he's got a foot really in, in both camps. 
But the most powerful man on the planet can't control his own dreams. It's interesting that, isn't it? When we've controlled all that we can control, there will always be something that we can't control. I don't know if there's any fans here this morning of, of Star Wars. I don't know if I've mentioned this film to you. It's, it's good. You should, you should check it out. And in one of these films, two people. Can I geek you out a little bit this morning? Is that okay? Oh, well, no response to being geeked out this morning. I'm going to geek you out a little bit. Two people called. If I say the word Jedi, yeah, again, you know, I, I understand this is not the full revelation. Two, two Jedi are journeying through un- this underwater sort of area, and this massive sea creature is following them, trying to catch them. And suddenly then another big creature comes along and swallows the fish that was trying to catch them. And this Jedi, as cool as you like, looks at this young apprentice who's with him and says, there's always a bigger fish. And it's true, isn't it? There's always a bigger fish. doesn't matter how much power you've got, how much money you've got, how much health you've got, strength, muscles, track records, success rate. There's always a bigger fish. And if you and I make our lives about trying to catch the biggest fish, we're setting ourselves up to fail. There'll always be somebody funnier. There'll always be somebody more popular. There'll always be somebody with more. And, and yet we still yearn after it, don't we? There's a, an illusion that we fall for, that somehow we're going to be the person that breaks the cycle. But the reality is that there is always a bigger fish. I want to take you back to a day in your life. Now, before you think, well, you don't know me, John, so you don't know my life, this will be a day that we've all experienced. It's it's your birthday, literally the day of your birth. Now, most of us will will know the date of that. Some of us possibly don't, but most of us will remember the date. But thankfully, we don't remember the drama of it. How, How many of us have been there when somebody's being born? Yeah, yeah. Do you still have the nightmares, Mike? <laughs> it's a. You, I'll talk to you later. Well, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe this isn't the forum for your counselling. But it's a messy moment. As this beautiful, wonderful, messy life enters the world, and the truth is that all of us begin life that way. We enter life, don't we? We enter this wonderful, bizarre existence called time and space. And for most of us, planet Earth, we enter it as this vulnerable little thing. Cold and naked. Hungry. and Helpless. And if we're blessed, somebody will take us and wrap us up and clothe us, bond with us and us with them feed us, love us, take us to some kind of home where others will will share in that, will begin to to grow up. But there deep inside of us, there is this fragile, frightened little voice. Am Am I safe in this world? Am I safe in this environment? Will I get what I need or do I have to come screaming and kicking to get the things that I need? And then we begin to, to grow up, don't we? And we develop things. We build a life around of us. We 
build interest and hobbies and friends and then education and we begin to understand a little bit about the world and hopefully then we try and find a place in that world, something that gives us purpose, something that we feel adds value somehow to the world, something that, that gives us meaning. And we call that a job often or a career or a cause or a calling. We try and contribute to the world and part of that means moving away from those people who first held us and first loved us. And some of that means challenging what they first taught us. And we begin to change our minds about some of it. As we get older, some of it comes into sharper focus for us. And then as we journey through life, those people, for some of us, pass on. And it's well documented now that the loss of a parent is one of the most affecting experiences of life. Many of us here will know that. Many of us here will know how affecting it is to lose both parents. And that voice which spoke to us, those words that held us, that hand that taught us, is gone. And still that fragile voice in us is still asking, am I, am I safe here? And so we try and drown it out. Drown it out mainly by doing things that seem really important or keeping ourselves busy. We don't want to think about it, and so we build around ourselves this sort of fortress, this sanctum. And then there are those moments when we're reminded that those things can fail us. Those things can desert us. All kinds of things can happen that affect us financially, can affect our employment, our whole direction in life. And then who am I if this purpose I've got is, is taken from me? Where do I fit if, if not no longer there? Sometimes relationships that we thought of as eternal erode remarkably rapidly. Sometimes our relationship with God is called into question. We face a question that we haven't got an answer to. A doubt that was somewhere else on someone else's horizon but has now come in front of us. And those things that we thought of as sure are challenged and, and shaken. See, we, we get smarter, we get better, we get stronger, but all of us still have this voice inside of us, if we're honest. If the name King Nebuchadnezzar expresses itself in this dream that will not go away. It's quite interesting to me that the first thing he does is he, he calls all the, uh, the magi in, which is what they were called there in, uh, in Babylon, uh, the advisors. And he tells them, the dream. Did you notice in the dream the language begins to shift from this tree that is enormous, that actually the, the branches grow out and its fruit feeds all the, the animals of the world. The language changes from a tree to him. And so we know that this tree is about a person, a person of global impact, a person of global influence. And then it gets chopped down and Nebuchadnezzar can't bring himself to admit what he fears about who that could be. And so he brings all the advisors in and says, well, I've had this dream about a person who's got this global influence. Who do you think it can be? It's quite interesting to me that the Bible doesn't say they couldn't in uh, interpret it, but they wouldn't interpret it. It's not the most difficult dream to interpret, at least not on an initial level. So the king calls for Daniel. Have you got somebody who will speak truth to you? no matter how hard it is to hear. We need it, don't we? 
We need, it. we need somebody who will shine a light on those places that we don't really want everyone to see. Someone who will speak into those parts of our lives that we don't want everyone to know about. But we need somebody. And the king knows, well, if nobody else will, Daniel will tell me the truth. It's amazing, isn't it? Years later, there would be another king who would walk this earth. A king who didn't fall for this trap, this illusion, this temptation. I've got to have more. I've got to be more. I've got to own more. I've got to command more. A king who let other people recognize his kingship. His name's Jesus. He came to introduce us to another kingdom, another way of living, which is not about your postcode or your impressiveness or any of those things. He told people, if you seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff just gets added to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. The fear of the future. Oh boy. <laughs> all fear really is the fear of the unknown, isn't it? And so the future exists in this bit that we can't really know. We can try and plan it and manage it and manipulate it and tidy it up as best we can, but none of us knows. None of us knows what the rest of this day holds, let alone tomorrow. Jesus says if you're embedded in, in this kingdom, if you're following this God, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can worry about itself. Have you noticed how the flowers grow? How beautiful they are? Do they look stressed? Do they look worried? Have they got a pension plan? Your Heavenly Father feeds them, and they grow today and will be gone tomorrow. How much more valuable are you, uh, are you to Him than they? Have you noticed the birds? Are they stowing away in barns? How much more valuable are you to God than they? And yet for Nebuchadnezzar, and I guess for all, if not most of us, most if not all of us, there needs to be a sense of unraveling. Because the truth is, this illusion that we can build ourselves a security, we can build a, a fortress, a, a life that's invincible, impenetrable, this illusion is, is so deep within us, isn't it? that it needs somehow to be unraveled. The addiction is, is so strong that somehow it needs to be shattered. It, it needs to be broken. And so this dream is warning Nebuchadnezzar, there will be, Nebuchadnezzar, an unraveling, an undoing, a, a tearing down of all that you have built up. I've spoken to so many people who've been through those things who never really thought about it until they were lying in hospital after that heart attack or sat in that car not wanting to drive home after that news. But who've said it's the most precious experience when you realize what's real, what's really important. Paul, writing later, would put it this way, what's seen is temporary, what's unseen is eternal. How much time do I spend developing the unseen part of myself? How much time do I spend worrying about the seen parts of myself and, and my life? There's an amazing phrase that is used by this messenger 
that comes from heaven. It talks about Nebuchadnezzar and all that's about to happen to him. That this glorious tree is going to be chopped down. Its branches are going to be stripped. Its fruit is going to be scattered. That this man of, of impressiveness, of importance, of influence is going to be brought low. But the stump will remain, it says. It's actually going to be bound in, in iron and bronze so that nobody else can come and, and chop it down. Nobody else can do damage to it. It will stay there for a period of time. And these words come from the angel, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Where does dew come? It's in the grass, isn't it? It's, in, it's on the floor. Nebuchadnezzar would not be used to eating off the floor before this. And yet that experience is understood in this way, be drenched in the dew of heaven. Sometimes the most harmful, uh, the most hurtful things can be the most beneficial things for us. I think Matt Redman gets close to it in one of his songs where he talks about being sweetly broken. Nebuchadnezzar, there will be an unraveling. So then we come to Daniel to Daniel's response. Like I was saying, he, he doesn't need time to pray on this. He doesn't call for an all-night prayer meeting. He doesn't gather friends around him. He, he prays. But there's something about the strength of this that means he, he delays slightly. We're going to read on from verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly troubled for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. He doesn't rejoice in the thought that this is going to happen. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar, this is Daniel, answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, shelter to the wild animals, nesting places in the branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty, you saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree means, with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel's nervousness doesn't hold him back 
from truthfulness. He says, your majesty, you're the tree. A bit like in the dream that we saw a couple of weeks ago with the statue. Remember that with the four parts and the four different types of material? Your majesty, you are the head of gold. That's a bit of an easier one to bring, isn't it? Your majesty, you're a tree that's about to be cut down. You're about to be humbled at a level that most people don't experience. You're going to live with wild animals, eat grass like an ox, until you acknowledge that heaven rules. Even within the pain, there holds the power of the promise, doesn't it? There is something that remains. There is something that remains. Uh, there's a biologist by the name of Stuart Kaufman uh, who's written a book called uh, At Home in the Universe. Uh, it's not a book I've read. It's language and understanding. His ideas are, are really complex. I've not read it yet, but I've read certain excerpts of it. And he writes about this, the difference that came, this shift that comes by simply believing that there is no creator, that this universe is, a, is an accident, that we've arrived here somehow at beauty and truth and meaning from nothingness. He, he describes the difference in those two ideas. He says that before, however people believed that it happened, when you believed that there was a God behind it, we had purpose, we had meaning. He talks about now the scientific pursuit uh, that is not exclusively this way, far from it. But there is a, a, an area of it, the new atheist corner, that seems to argue that we need no designer, we need no creator. And he writes that we find ourselves now on a tiny planet on the edge of a humdrum galaxy among billions like it. We are but accidents, we're told. The universe now appears utterly indifferent. We bustle, but we are no longer at home. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, it's helpful to understand one story in the context of the big story. And often to help us do that, the, the writer scatters clues for us that have echoes back to another story. So already in this chapter, we've had words like dominion. We've had words like one tree that somehow holds power for the whole of the earth. We've had this repeated word, Jew, that keeps coming up. There are echoes, aren't there, right back to the first and second chapter of our scriptures, of, of Genesis. That God created this beautiful place with all of its complexity and wonder and diversity and design that it's created and it's created for us. And that we're told that as part of this unfolding story of creation, God creates humanity in his own image. That somehow human beings are royal image bearers of the creator of the cosmos. I don't know if you've stopped to think about this. It's so interesting that Rosie started with this this morning. That you and I bear the image of the creator God. This is, I mean, it's unique in all of ancient literature and it's so powerful for us today. God has stamped his ownership upon you. There is something, yes, fallen, yes, flawed, yes, broken, but there is something essentially divine-like about you. You have the breath of God in your lungs. That's an incredible thought. And that as part of that, God gives to early humanity, to Adam and Eve, this authority. He says to them, rule over 
the beasts of the earth, the animals of the air, uh, the fish of the sea. You are to rule over them in a way that stewards them, the way that shepherds them. Uh, it's a way in the ancient word, a, a word that would mean to cause something to bloom, to come to its, its full potential. You have that authority. So Genesis kind of gives us this picture of God the creator, the king of all the earth, who delegates some responsibility, some authority to human beings to care for the beasts of the earth. And it's interesting, isn't it, in this story, when Nebuchadnezzar does away with the creator God, suddenly this whole structure, this whole house of cards comes crashing down, and suddenly this human being starts behaving like a beast of the earth. That's one of the main messages of Daniel. A human authority without any recognition of God's sovereignty, without any recognition that all human power is delegated from God itself, starts to act in a rather animalistic way. Interestingly, this ox and beasts are going to be really important to how we understand the rest of the prophecies that come that we'll come back to after Easter. But for now, can, can you see what Daniel is saying? King Nebuchadnezzar, you've been given this position, but without any recognition of the person who gave it for you, you're using it in ways that are more beastly than, than human, that aren't representing the image of God in you or through you. I don't know if there's any um, American basketball fans here today. Well, I got even less of a reaction than Star Wars, aren't I? I'm so worried about you guys. Uh, but there's a, a, a legendary coach in the world of American basketball, uh, a guy called Pat Riley, who coached two teams to kind of incredible seasons. Uh, and he's written uh, about two sort of stages that you can see uh, in sort of basketball teams. And it kind of can get applied to all kind of other areas of life. He says that early on, when teams start to do well and start to win, uh, there's what he calls the innocent clown. Uh, the team are innocent, they're excited, uh, they're empowered by this, there's a momentum and energy to it. And then he says, you can enter this stage, what he calls the disease of me. The chests start to get a little bit inflated, the shoulders get a bit broader, and people's positions and names seem to mean a bit more. Egos begin to enter the story and bump against each other. Interesting phrase the disease of me. People who start to believe they're bigger than the team. or People who start to believe they're the ones to whom all the success is, is due. And he's written that in his experience, the disease of me can affect any player in any team at any time in any season. It'd be easy to pick just on sports people, wouldn't it? But the truth is the disease of me runs deep within each and every one of us. How often do we stop to acknowledge what God has done for us? How often do we stop to acknowledge His, his grace in us, his, his gifting through us? How often do we need to come back from the disease of me? For Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't do it on his own. He needed a shock treatment to get himself out of it. And Daniel brings him to a place of reality. Nebuchadnezzar, you may have a throne, you may have a kingdom, you may have money, uh, you may have a, an army, you may have officials, but you're a human being. And what ha could happen to any human being could happen to you. It's just reality, isn't it? And humility is always related to, uh, to, to reality. 
Humility is always a recognition of reality. You don't have to try and make yourself more humble. You just have to recognize it. It's true, we're, we're fragile, we're fallible people. And to try and live as if we're not is only going to lead us to a place that Nebuchadnezzar found it. But what's interesting in this passage is that God is not reaching out to him through intimidation, but invitation. This will come, this unraveling, Nebuchadnezzar, until you acknowledge that heaven rules. There's a passage later in the New Testament that says, humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you at your due time. And that's, that's the option that all of us face, isn't it? We can be humbled, or we can humble ourselves. Neither experience is particularly pleasant, but one is far more pleasant than the other to humble ourselves. Paul there goes on to add, or so Peter goes on to add to that, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's something about the position of a humble heart that can receive grace. The pride will always say, I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't want to admit I need anything at all. So what does this mean for you and for I? Well, thankfully, Nebuchadnezzar's letter and uh, Daniel's response are not the only things that we read uh, in this chapter. Uh, we're going to pick it up again from verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later. So there's a real grace period at work here, isn't there? Right? There's, a, there's a year to receive this interpretation. Twelve months later. As the king was walking on the top of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I've built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So just a quick score here. How well do we think Nebuchadnezzar has received the interpretation of this dream? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the commanding voice. This is what I've decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At, that, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. You'd be crazy not to admit who God is. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right 
and his ways are just. And all who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And if anyone can say that, it's Nebuchadnezzar. There are the shoots here, aren't there, of new life. And that's our God. Let the stump remain. There's something that remains, something that can grow. Really interestingly, uh, for a long time, people sort of questioned the, the historicity of the, this book of Daniel. Could this have really happened? Do we really believe that a Jewish exile was given this place in the, the court of the king of Babylon? And do we know any of it's real? And for years and years, people questioned whether King Nebuchadnezzar really did build up Babylon in the way that the book of Daniel describes. And yet today, if you go to the British Museum, there are these six columns which detail King Nebuchadnezzar's building projects. Uh, you can't dig in that area, or you couldn't dig in the area without uh, digging up a brick that had King Nebuchadnezzar's name stamped on it. Every time anyone built anything, King Nebuchadnezzar's name was on it. He was a prolific builder. He wanted to build up his kingdom. And the chronicles of everything that's going on are recorded for us. The government affairs are, are written down. And yet... There is a mysterious seven-year gap in the records of Babylon. There's a Greek historian who writes relatively soon after these events about King Nebuchadnezzar being possessed by some god and disappearing for about seven years. But I want to just land on this one thing because time is rapidly going and we need to pray together. Who wrote this chapter? Did you notice that? might explain why the middle part of the book of Daniel is not written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic. Anybody know who wrote this chapter? Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And so we have here somebody who in one season of his life is building an image of himself 90 feet tall of gold, saying everybody bow down and worship it who is then writing to people saying, learn from me. I had to be humbled to see it. And if God can do that for him, God can do that for you and I. And I want you to know today, he invites us into that, not through intimidation, but through invitation. Nebuchadnezzar ignored it for about a year. Don't ignore it. All of us today need to look at our kingdoms. What is it that we hold? What's our spheres of, of impact, of influence? What does that mean to us? What does, it, what does it give to us? And Are we using those things for the glory of God's kingdom? Or are they just serving me? Because I can do that. I can make my life all about me. You can make your life all about you. And it will not go well for you. The most sane thing we can do is to recognize that heaven rules. So let's pause for a moment and just, just pray together. And I just want to invite you to do that today, to think about your kingdom. It might seem like a strange thing to say, but all of us have one. All of us have a, a sphere of influence. All of us have a, a measure of authority, things that we can do, things that we can cause to happen. What is, where is that for you? What does that mean for you? 
And the invitation today is to humble all of that before God, to recognize the reality. We don't have to make it true. We don't have to pretend it's true. Heaven rules. But until we acknowledge that in all of our ways, there is a madness, a beastliness to our kingdom.